this, the third of our Destination podcasts. This is a series of podcasts designed to explore the process of ensuring scheme liabilities through the purchase of a bulk annuity contract. I'm David Hosford, a partner in the pensions team here at Osborne Clark. Today I'm joined by Lee Colgate. Lee is a legal director in the team, and today we're going to look at the common legal issues that will arise for a scheme when approaching the bulk annuity market. Welcome, Lee. Thank you, David. So let's start off with asking you, what are the initial legal considerations for a scheme that is buying a bulk annuity? Well, the starting point is that the purchase of a bulk annuity policy is an investment decision for the trustees. That's because the policy will initially be held as an asset of the scheme, paying out a monthly amount equal to the pensions insured, as well as making payments to meet other obligations, such as transfer values, lump sums on retirement and so on. So the first point for trustees is they must have sufficient power to purchase a bulk annuity policy under their scheme rules, and that will usually be found in the investment rule. So that's investment power. What other powers in the rules will be relevant to the annuity purchase? Well, as I say, the policy will be held as an asset for a while, but this is usually an interim step to the ultimate destination of asking the insurer to issue individual policies for members and discharging the scheme from any further liability, so moving to buyout. Buyout is usually done as part of the process of winding up the scheme. So if that is the scheme's destination, the parties will also want to know who has the power to trigger winding up, the employer or trustees, and whether the trustees have the power to purchase or assign individual insurance policies for beneficiaries once winding up starts. If the scheme's in surplus when the bulk annuity is purchased, then the balance of powers in respect of surplus, whether while the scheme is ongoing or in winding up, will also be a relevant consideration. So tell me what happens if the trustees don't have sufficient powers. Can they amend their rules? Absolutely. To the extent the trustees do not have sufficient power to purchase the policy or deal with policies and winding up, then they should amend their rules to give them the required powers. Amendment of this sort should not be controversial and it's unlikely the amendment power would place a restriction on the ability to make the change. However, powers to trigger the winding up and decide on the use of surplus are different and employers are not likely to give up any control of these matters. So in that case, it'll be best for the parties to discuss and be broadly in alignment on these issues from the outset. Okay, so let's assume the trustees are satisfied they've got all the necessary powers to purchase the bulk annuity policy. Could you tell us what the considerations are that the trustees will need to take into account before exercising those powers? Well, as the purchase is an investment decision, trustees will have a general trust law duty to take such care as a prudent man of business would when investing for someone to whom they felt morally obliged. They have a duty to ensure that scheme assets are appropriately diversified and provide sufficient security, liquidity and profitability. And in general, a long term insurance policy will meet those criteria. They also need to be satisfied that the purchase of the bulk annuity policy is in the best interest of their scheme members. And that becomes a statutory obligation if the scheme has more than 100 members. So best interest is a classic in pensions. What does it mean in the uh, in the context here? Well, in practice, it tends to boil down to one central issue. Will the insurance policy improve security of benefits for members? And that in turn effectively becomes a comparison of the financial covenants of the insurer and the scheme sponsoring employer. In our first podcast of this series, we looked at that and we also heard how insurance is the gold standard in terms of member security because of the regulatory insurance regime that sits around insurers. Um, 
Trustees should consider taking independent insurer covenant advice as it can be informative, but it can also help demonstrate the soundness of the trustees decision making process. Also, where there are a number of insurers who have provided quotes, then that independent covenant advice can provide a useful insight into the comparative security of each insurer, which may be a relevant point of differentiation over and above the baseline of which insurer is the cheapest. Great, so let's start looking at some of the, uh, the actual process then. Most annuity policies will only require the insurer to pay the benefits they're expressly undertaking to insure. What are the legal considerations and issues for this part of the process? Yeah, that's right. In most cases, the insurer, the insurer will only assume liability for the benefits the trustees describe to them and which the insurer agrees are insurable. So that means both the data for the beneficiaries, age, sex, amount of pension, marital status and so on. And also the benefit structure for the scheme, what each type of beneficiary, the pensioners, deferred members, dependents, etc. is entitled to under your scheme rules. So a key part of the process then is describing that benefit structure and that's done in a benefit specification. The specification essentially seeks to distill the key elements of the scheme benefits into a format the insurer will use to understand its liability. It will cover matters such as when pensions are payable, the rates of revaluation between leaving the scheme and taking retirement, the rate of increase on pensions in payment, what benefits are payable on death and so on. However, it's important to note the purpose of the benefit specification is to set out the benefits to be insured and that might not simply be a matter of setting out the provisions of your scheme rules. Practice will need to be taken into account and you'll also need to consider any special terms given to members or categories of members by agreements like benefit augmentations which are separate from the rules. The specification should be in plain English and should be linked to the data provided to the insurer and that means making sure the benefit descriptors match up with the data the elements that cross refer back to the data are accurate and so on. So while the benefit specification will typically be prepared or reviewed by the scheme's legal advisors, they'll work with the scheme administrators and the actuary to ensure it matches both what's happening in practice and that it ties in with the data. Question that often comes up is for schemes that have been in existence for a long time and have had the rules amended and updated on numerous occasions. And it's really how far back do you need to go into the into the weeds of the history of the scheme and preparing the benefits specification? Well, that's right. I mean, many schemes will have had two, three or more consolidated or definitive sets of rules over their lifetime. And it's common for those rules to be limited in application to the individuals who are in active membership at the point they were executed. Although, of course, the terms of each rules will need to be carefully considered to establish their applicability. But where different beneficiaries are governed by different sets of rules, it'll be important to make sure that all those versions are reviewed and differences captured so that members get the benefits they're entitled to. Sometimes those differences will be meaningful and sometimes potentially less meaningful and administration practice may have developed to smooth out those differences deliberately or not. An example might be the circumstances in which a child's pension is payable on death of a spouse. That can shift over time and it may be payable for some members and not for others. And in that case, the trustees might look to harmonise the benefit across all members. Of course, they'd want to understand any impact on the policy price before they do, but children's pensions don't often have a material impact on, on insurer pricing. So in order to harmonise, the parties will need to exercise a relevant power in the rule. For example, providing a child's pension where one may not previously have been payable could be achieved through the augmentation power. So that's the harmonisation side. What about other benefits? 
particularly service related benefits that may need attention to be insurable? Uh, well, insurers want certainty liability and the schemes that have closed to accrual can commonly have benefits, as you say, that uh, are better than standard benefits for as long as the individual remains in service with a sponsoring employer. A classic example is the retained final salary link for the calculation of pension uh, whilst an individual is in the sponsored service. Another might be an ill health benefit calculated by a percentage of salary whilst in service. So you'd want to explore whether it's possible to break those links prior to transacting not least because a continued link will mean uncertainty of final premium costs for as long as it lasts. However, insurers are sometimes willing to allow your scheme to maintain that link while the bulk annuity policy is in the buy-in phase, but it will need to be broken before your scheme moves to buyout. The key point really is that you should identify and try to resolve these types of issues before requesting quotations from insurers, or at the very least have a plan for dealing with them post-transaction that you can communicate to the insurers. Of course, if you need to seek member agreement to, to this type of issue, that can clearly have an impact on the timescale for the overall project. Right, so you've reviewed all your sets of rules. You've identified any service related benefits that you need to look at. What other common legal issues or bear traps are there that may arise during the initial process? Well, in preparing the benefit specification, the legal advisor will revisit and examine all of the various changes that have been made to the rules to ensure they've been properly implemented. And both the trustees who will be seeking a complete discharge from liability for scheme benefits and buyouts and the sponsoring employer who will ultimately be meeting the cost of the bulk annuity policy will want certainty that they're securing the correct benefits and that there are no unwelcome surprises post transaction. As we've discussed, most bulk annuity policies will not be all risks insurer will only assume responsibility for the benefits agreed between the parties. So if you want to ensure that the scheme doesn't have any ongoing responsibility for benefits because you've undersecured or missed beneficiaries, the best way to do that is to carry out a full get the drains up type of review. Of course, there may be some wariness about that because it can uncover further liability, but it's essential to ensure the correct benefits are captured in my view. And what are the classic problem areas you'd be looking for in that review? So the review will generally cover all benefit areas, but we'll focus on key areas, including changes to accrual rates or pension increase rates, the effectiveness of steps taken to equalise normal retirement ages and the closure of the scheme to future accrual of benefits. Where issues are identified, the scheme will need to take advice from its lawyers and take steps to remedy any problems. As this could obviously have an impact on scheme liabilities, it could impact the feasibility of purchasing the policy in the short term, but again, it's essential to know that at the start of the process rather than discovering an issue later on. If a small scheme ends up being unable to complete a proposed transaction because an issue like this emerges late in the process, that failure may prejudice the scheme's chances of attracting quotations from insurers when it's ready to try again. In some cases, the insurer may agree to deal with known issues post-transaction, again during the buy-in stage of the policy, but the trustees and the sponsor will want a clear idea of the potential impact on costs before they agree to that. Right, so linking in with the benefit spec, we've got trustee discretions in scheme rules. It's usual to codify those to uh, facilitate the bulk annuity policy purchase. Could you tell us a little bit more about why that is and what the process would be? Well, as I say, insurers want certainty about the amount of liability, but they also want certainty about who's entitled to receive a payment and if there's more than one potential recipient, the order of priority for paying that benefit. They don't want to exercise the discretion where possible. 
so as you say, schemes will normally go through a process with their legal advisor of identifying benefit issues that need a decision from the trustees or sponsor, and then look to codify that decision in a way that's acceptable to an insurer and fits with how the insurer is willing to administer the scheme. This, in, this is then reflected in the benefit specification that's given to the insurers. An example might be the reduction of benefits payable for a spouse who's more than 10 years younger than the scheme member who's died. The rules might provide the trustees can decide whether or not to apply a reduction and or the rate of reduction in any given case. The insurer wants to know if a reduction should be applied and by how much. So in that case, the trustees would codify the decision going forwards. For example, a reduction would always be applied and fix the, the rate of uh, reduction, for example, 2.5% for each year younger. In practice, the legal advisor will produce a table of all such decisions and discretions and make a recommendation about how best to codify those to match insurer requirements. The trustees and sponsor will then take a view of those recommendations and make a decision. The whole process would ultimately be documented and signed by all the relevant parties and kept for the records and in case of future complaint. Thank you, Lee. That was really helpful. Um, thanks also, everyone, for listening. You may be interested in our interactive online tool to assess how prepared your scheme is for buyout and the areas you need to focus on to get it ready. Do please contact us or your usual OC contact to find out more about that tool or if you have any other questions around the processes we've been describing today. That's all for today actually. But do join us next time when Jonathan Hazlett will be speaking to Richard Seymour from PIC uh, on how to prepare your data ready for buyout.